Greetings, my name's Adam Draycott and welcome to the online service for St Augustine's Anglican Church in Varel. It's great to be sharing this time of fellowship with you. Our sentence of scripture for uh, the 18th of October 2020 comes from Psalm 17. We call upon you, Lord, for you answer us. Incline your ear to us, hear our words. Keep us as the apple of the eye. Hide us in the shadow of your wings. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Almighty and ever-living God, our source of power and inspiration, give us strength and joy in serving you as followers of Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. today come from Isaiah chapter 66 verses 1 to 6, Psalm 4 and Luke chapter 18 verses 9 to 14. 
I invite you to pause the screen now and take a moment to read the Old Testament references. Uh, so pause the screen. But now I'm going to read to you from Luke chapter 18. Please follow along uh, with your Bible open. That's enormously helpful. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Well, as we come to God's word, uh, having heard it read for us, uh, let us pray. Our Father God, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these parables. Uh, by your spirit, speak to our hearts and our minds. Uh, grow us in Christ Jesus, uh, that we might live lives of praise to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here is a familiar story. As you look at verse 10, uh, two men went up to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, the other is a tax collector. Uh, where are they? They're at the temple. And the temple is a public place of worship. And maybe it's the time of morning sacrifice. It might be the 3 p.m. session, the matinee. Who, who's to know? And who is there? Well, it's no surprise there's a Pharisee there. Uh, but should we expect the other bloke? Remember, the tax collector is considered to be a lowlife. He's a traitor. He's betrayed his people. And now he dares show his face here. And we find them both praying, yet only one goes home right with God. And that is classic Jesus, isn't it? Here's Jesus telling a story that becomes uh, like a lightning rod to the ears of those who are listening. And the shock, well, what is the shock? I think you know it. The shock should be that the tax collector, the low-life traitor, verse 14, he's the one that goes home right with God, not the other bloke. Now, how does this work? How we might ask? Well, Luke tells us up front. Verse 9. We don't have to wonder about why this passage is here. We don't have to wonder about what it means. It's interpreted for us. Can you see verse 9? To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Hooray! We are told. 
Now the next question then is, well it's good to be told, but what on earth does righteousness mean? Well, we, we need to explore that. What does it mean to be righteous? Righteousness. What is that about? Uh, does it describe a good moral person, a religious person, an upright person, a, a decent person? It can sound like a moral term or even a legal term. A, a, a right person might be right with the law. An unrighteous person then would be wrong with the law, sure. So we might conclude, well, a righteous person is a good, good person. A law keeper. Uh, I want to say to you today, it is not enough. That's inadequate. Uh, have a think about road rules. Come with me, have a think. Sometimes the government needs to establish good boundaries for us. Uh, when we do the speed limit, it's an act of loving our neighbour, isn't it? It should be. Uh, if it isn't, why isn't it an act of loving your neighbour? Probably because you're too busy loving yourself. That's what speeding is ultimately. And if you do 80 kilometres in a school zone, are you loving your neighbour? Absolutely not. No. You're actually being a complete and utter idiot. No one should ever do that. But if I do 40 kilometres an hour, I could keep the law. But it doesn't necessarily follow that in keeping the law, in doing the right thing, doesn't necessarily follow that I'm actually loving the children or teachers. It doesn't necessarily follow, does it? I mean, what if I still resent the law? Or the children and the teachers it's meant that law is meant to protect. So you can see the inadequacy of the law there, that keeping it, we can still do that, yet be devoid of relationship. But righteousness, it isn't primarily about the law and morals. Righteousness begins and ends with love. Because I, so ideally, because I want to love the students and teachers uh, at the local primary school, I will happily drive 40 kilometres per hour or less through the school zone. I will take my time. So righteousness then is about my relationship with the other, whoever it is. It is about doing the right thing, but doing the right thing is simply the fruit of that relationship. Righteousness doesn't start with the law. It starts with love. And I wonder if you see that. This is what we need to grasp as we think about this important concept. So if I'm in a right relationship with you, it means that there's peace and friendship and trust, acceptance and loyalty and goodness and blessing and good fruit. Oh, good things flow out of right relationships, don't they? But means we're righteous. Our, our relationship is right. But if I'm in a wrong relationship with you, that is unrighteous and bad fruit follows, doesn't it? And nobody enjoys that, surely. The Pharisees, here they are. They're so hung up about the law, they've exaggerated the law, they've wielded it, they've waved it, they've goaded people with it, they've burden people with the law as if by keeping the law or even going beyond it somehow merits God's favour. And so the Pharisees think they're righteous. They'll try and look and act righteous in public like this bloke. And so what do you think? 
Can you hear him? I mean, he's so righteous. He's going to stand away from everyone else. He doesn't want to be defiled by the great unwashed, the unclean. But he's happy to educate them. Did you notice that as he speaks? He'll pray in such a way as to educate others. He's loaded with advice. So maybe they can be in awe of his stratospheric piety. What a great opportunity the unwashed have here to listen to him. Not. Of course, as you think about the Pharisee and the way he prays, of course no one would pray publicly in church like that, would they? No one would pray in church prayers that are loaded with accusation or agenda, would they? Because if you did, you'd sound like this bloke. Notice as he prays, he's got a measuring stick. He's keen to measure himself against everyone else. He loves to compare. Notice his measurements. He's not like the other bloke. In fact, he's better than they are. Just ask him. Especially verse 11. Look at verse 11. He now compares himself to the tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now imagine that. At this point, are you glad you're not like the Pharisee? And if you're glad you're not like the Pharisee, do you see the irony of that question? We read this, oh, I thank you, God, I'm not like him. And in doing so, do you see that we really, really, really are just like him at that point? Comparing ourselves to others, we do it all the time. Of course, in, in the end, it doesn't mean anything. You can compare all you like, it doesn't mean anything. Why not? Because it's the wrong standard. It's the wrong measure. So then you say, Adam, what's the right standard? And I say, the answer is God's standard. God's righteousness is the right measure. It's not other people's. It's God's. At this bloke, he thinks he can look good before God by putting other people down I mean, compared to, compared to him, I'm great. Just ask him. Uh, compared to my neighbours, have, have you seen my neighbours lately? They're terrible people. It's that kind of thing. But the standard is not other people. The standard is God. God himself. And so, the next question has to be, well, how do you think you measure up before God? How do you measure up to God and his standard of righteousness? Are you righteous? Like God is righteous? Are you holy like God is holy? Are you loving like God is loving? Are you God-like in your relationships? Are you godly like God is godly? Of course he is. And are you perfect? And at that point do you pray, Father God, lift my blindness to my pride from my eyes. Amen. Right? Is that your prayer? Second thing to notice about this Pharisee, he carries not only a measuring stick, uh, uh, the wrong one, he carries a resume. Hear him rehearse his achievements. Verse 12, I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all I get. He's a law keeper. And you're like, man, talk it up, man. He's having a good boast, isn't he? 
Do you see him trusting that his works, his performance, his keeping of the law, he thinks that makes him righteous? Can you see it? And isn't it striking that this Pharisee brags about himself in the temple of God as he prays? Does he know who he's talking to? Is his resume supposed to impress God? Isn't it a dangerous, dangerous thing to come to God with boasting, talking ourselves up before God, rather than confessing to Him? I mean, that brings us to the other guy. The other guy is the tax collector. If the Pharisee's hands are full... The tax collector's hands are empty. Look at verse 13. The tax collector, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Everything about this guy reveals contrition and brokenness before God. Look at the way he's praying. He's so ashamed of his sin. He won't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He's even beating his chest. And when you think chest beating, don't think Tarzan, you know, oh, 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 and vines and monkey. No, don't think that. Think extraordinary sorrow. In fact, the only other case of people beating their chests recorded in the Bible is where? Where do you find... People beating their chest somewhere else in the Bible. If you said at the cross, gold star for you. Luke chapter 23, verse 48. Luke 23, 48. When the crowds, deeply disturbed at what had taken place, they beat their chest at the end of the day, just as Jesus died. So in their distress, as they are distraught and full of sorrow, see it for this bloke, the tax collector. See him cry out to God for mercy because he knows he's a sinner and he knows he desperately needs God's forgiveness. He needs his sin dealt with. In fact, as he cries out for mercy, that word mercy is quite loaded because it could be rendered atonement. He could be saying, oh God, make atonement for me. Uh, the word there is different. It's different to that used to the blind beggar in verse 38. who cries out for mercy later on. And so the other reason I'm bringing this up is because the setting fits. He stands apart from the other worshippers at the temple. Maybe he watches the lamb sacrificed for sin at the temple. The trumpets would blow, the cymbals would clash, psalms are sung, incense is waved around and wafts up to heaven, choirs are singing, and a tax collector, can you see him on his knees, beating his chest and crying? Oh Lord, make atonement for me. A sinner. Do you think he's different to the Pharisee? Oh, 100% he is. He's not looking to himself for righteousness. He's not pulling out his resume or his measuring stick. 
He just comes before God for mercy because he knows he's not righteous. He's got no righteousness. He got nothing. Incidentally, notice, neither does the other guy. But the difference is the tax collector knows it. His plea for mercy is a cry for God's anger to be removed justly and righteously and graciously uh, to be literally propitiated, if you like. Sin covered up, gone. And so see this bloke at the temple. See that he is humble and he is contrite. He is full of sorrow at his sin. See him crying out to God. Is his chest sore from all the thumping? And is his voice choked and hoarse for all the tears? And his head is down. And tell me again, who goes home right with God? Who ventured home enjoying a beautiful, blessed, right relationship with God? Look at verse 14. I tell you that this man, Jesus says, this man, rather than the other, <laughs> do you think the Pharisee's been demoted at that point? He's now called the other. This man went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves, they will be exalted. The Pharisee's hands are full of self-righteousness and self-love, but the tax collector's hands, they're empty. And it's the one with empty hands goes before goes before um, it's the one with empty hands before God. He goes home justified. The tax collector, the lowlife, the traitor, is declared righteous in God's sight. He's the one right with God. And isn't that the gospel right there? I want you to see something about contrition. I've talked about this only a few weeks ago. Contrition, I think, as a church, I'm talking about the broader church, and yeah, I'm talking about us as well. I think we've lost it. Uh, I've said this before, our Anglican prayer book encourages it. It invites it as part of the service, and it takes us down low. So we're humble before God, we confess our sin, and then it lifts us up. And I think we've lost the gravity and the meaning of it. I think too often the church broadly has bought into a sub-Christian pop psychology that is more concerned with rebuilding the ego by rebuilding self-esteem and the rest of it. I mean, if you're at the temple, let's think about this. You're at the temple, you see the tax collector, how are you going to respond to him? Are you going to saunter up to him, put your arm around him and tell him he's a good person? Are you going to massage his ego and soothe his wounds? You might be tempted. Are you going to bring out your measuring stick and affirm in him all that you think is good in him and keep it positive? And if that is you, at that point, I wonder if that approach has more to do with the Pharisee that the mistake, though, isn't self-justification on your part, but you're actually self-justifying another person. And we become enablers 
in something that's not helpful. I mean, how would you respond to the tax collector? And now my next question is, as you look at the tax collector, why don't, why don't we join him on our knees? Why haven't we joined him and cried out to God for mercy? Because we understand the gravity of our sin. It's, our sin is not okay. And, that we, and God's judgment, we need God to turn that judgment aside. Somehow. And all we've got is to cry out for mercy. Would you join the tax collector on your knees and cry out to God for mercy? Have you ever done that? I mean, is it possible the tax collector sees this temple stuff play out and he sees the gravity of his sin, he wants it dealt with, and so he longs, truly longs, for the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God, who will take away the sins of the world, John 1, 29. Does the tax collector seem to know that the only way to stand right before God is by trusting in the righteousness of another. And yet, the one who speaks this parable is Jesus himself. And, and he is the Lamb of God, isn't he? And we know that he has that righteousness that is now counted to us as it is received by faith for the Christian. See, you might be wondering today, how can I be righteous, Adam? And the answer is you get it from Jesus. Do you know that? That it is Jesus who lifts us up from our contrition, our low place, he lifts us up so we can stand before God, so that we can have peace with God. We need Jesus. Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith in Jesus, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. That's whom it's through. Through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast what do we boast in we boast in the hope of the glory of God 2 Corinthians 5 21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God see we have nothing to offer God but what a point of rejoicing to realise that everything we need is found in Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God. And as we come to him, low and contrite, the humble are exalted. The humble are lifted up. I invite you now, uh, please, to confess our sins to Almighty God together. Most merciful God, we humbly admit that we need your help. We confess that we have wandered from your way, we have done wrong, and we have failed to do what is right. You alone can save us. 
Have mercy on us. Wipe out our sins and teach us to forgive others. Bring forth in us the fruit of the Spirit that we may live as disciples of Christ. This we ask in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. Well, God wills that all people should be saved and in response to his call, we acknowledge our sins. So he pardons those of us who humbly repent and as we truly believe the gospel. And therefore, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, to whom be blessing and honour forever. And we can be encouraged with these great words from 1 John chapter 2. If anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Will you please join me as we pray the prayer of general thanksgiving. Most merciful Father, we humbly thank you for all your gifts so freely given to us, for life and health and safety, for power to work and leisure to rest. We praise and glorify your holy name. But above all, we thank you for your spiritual mercies in Christ Jesus our Lord, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. Fill our hearts with all joy and peace in believing. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.